this is the third in our uh, series, Behold, I'm making all things new, and we're up to the new commandment. We haven't picked that up already in this service uh, so far. But I'll ask you, what is the greatest of God's commandments? That wasn't a rhetorical question. You can tell me the greatest of the commandments. I assume someone said these words Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart this is the greatest and first commandment. The reason uh, this is the greatest commandment in the Lord is because it forms part of what is known as the Shema, the core confession of faith of the Jewish people. It's recited every time the Jews gather for worship. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, and uh, the word Shema is the Hebrew word hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, like command you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise, you shall find them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. For this confession, it contains a statement about who God is, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one and only true God. And because Israel are his people, they are to love him with their whole being. This love for the Lord is expressed then in their obedience to his words. Okay, what's the second phrase tonight? Second is why it you shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the world and the prophets. Now when we say second greatest, uh, sometimes we mean in the sense of second best, as if the second is inferior or less important than the first. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there isn't just one greatest commandment, there's two and this is the second of the greatest commandments. We call this commandment today in our reading from Leviticus chapter 19. Unlike the first commandment, it's not there as a public confession, but it's in there amongst all of those other commandments in a way that we might miss it if we read Leviticus too fast. It's because all of those other commandments are expressions or 
explanation of what it looks like to love your neighbour as yourself. Every command there in that reading was about loving your neighbour. Even those opening words about the peace offering. A peace offering was an offering you bring to the temple when you had been reconciled to another person. When you had forgiven and been forgiven, when you had settled the dispute, you would both go together to offer this peace offering to, to demonstrate your reconciliation. So, to not eat of that offering was in effect to say, I've gone through the motions, but I'm not actually willing to fully be reconciled to my brother and sister. This commandment is actually embedded in the first command, in the Shema. All the words that the Lord commanded Israel that they are to obey are those commands to love their neighbour as themselves. Biblical law is the only truly other person centred moral system. It says that first, above all things, must come God, our Creator, our Father, who deserves all glory for all things. Second, must come other people, our neighbours. And Jesus made it clear to me that our neighbours also includes our enemies and our persecutors. Only then, if we have time, ourselves. Now there's a popular distortion of this commandment to love your neighbour as yourself, which says that we must first learn to love ourselves before we'll be able to love others. That's actually a complete contradiction of what's been said in that command. See, the commandment assumes correctly that we already love ourselves. That is intrinsic to our fallen human nature, but always put our own interests first. Everyone loves us, regardless of what they may say to the contrary. Even the so-called low self-esteem is a form of self-love. If I claim that I hate myself, if I feel I'm worthless, that nobody takes notice of my of me and I'm sad about that, then that demonstrates I actually love myself, otherwise why would I be sad? If I hated myself, I would be glad that no one was like me. It's only because I believe that I'm worthy of love, in other words, I've already loved myself, that it upsets me that others don't love me in the way that I think I deserve. So the secret to being able to love your neighbour is not in loving yourself first, it's in loving the Lord your God first. And the reason that we are able to love the Lord is because He is our God who first loved us. When we know the security of being the object of His love, not because we deserve it, but because He by Nature is love, and he even loves the unworthy. 
then you will be set free. Set free from trying to find security in being loved by our neighbour. And instead you will be enabled to love our neighbour. You no longer try to recruit people to love us because knowing the love of God will provide all that we need. Now, Jesus tells us that it's on these two commandments that all the law and the prophets depend. The law tells us both how we must love the Lord and love our neighbour, as well as showing us how we fall short of that standard, reveals our sin, that brings us under condemnation. And the prophets were continually calling Israel back to the covenant of the Lord's love for his people. They pronounced present and coming judgments for their breaking of this covenant of love, for their failure to love the Lord and to love one another. And as we've been seeing, the prophets foretold a time when there would be this new covenant, when the commands of God would be written on our hearts and we'd be enabled to walk in the Spirit in those commands without condemnation. Without love, the wall would just be an empty, vain, legalistic system. And the prophets would just be a whole lot of whatever. Often the Old Testament law is a caricature of being harsh overly strict and people think that Jesus came to do away with it and to replace it with a more gentle, more loving way. But as we've been saying, the heart of the law is love. And in Jesus' own words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of God. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, whenever speaking of the moral law, never did away with or changed any of the commands that were there in the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he never threw out any of the commands of the law. He threw out the traditions of the Pharisees that they had added to the law, and he corrected their wrong interpretations of the law that gave them an excuse for keeping the letter of the law and not actually living the life. So Jesus never overturned the old law, the, the law of Moses. Why does Jesus then in our second reading say, I give you a new command. And then the command that he gives sounds just like the old commandment to love 
first remember what we've been saying in these, uh, this series on biblical newness that it's, it's not necessarily a brand new thing that's never happened before, but it's the old that's been renewed and made permanent. The command to love your neighbour as yourself has been reinforced and expressed to its fullest extent by Jesus and his words and his actions. And that has ensured us that love still remains at the centre of the Father's plans for the world. Secondly, though, see how Jesus has now become the criterion for determining what true love for your neighbour looks like. Under the old, command, the old covenant, we hear that command of Leviticus 19, 8, and we ask, and how do I do that? How do I love my neighbour as myself? And we'd be told the answer is found in all of the written commandments in the law, the letter of the law written in stone. But under the new covenant, when we ask the same question, we're told, look to Jesus. See how he loved you as his neighbour by laying down his life for you at the cross. He is the Lord who now puts the law within you and writes it on your hearts by the Spirit. So we no longer need a codified system of instructions to tell us what love is because it's embodied in Jesus. 1 John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love one another as I have loved you. He's not saying there though, as much as I have loved you. Which one of us could ever love someone to the extent that Jesus has loved us and loved the world? We can never show that magnitude of love because we are not God. God is very character is love. Selfless love. What he's saying there is in the same manner. Self-sacrificial giving in which we lay down our lives for one another. In some settings that may actually mean losing our lives physically for the sake of others. It also means simply putting aside my own agenda my own desires, sacrificing my personal comforts and conveniences and resources for the sake of others. Let's dig a bit deeper into Jesus' words here by looking at the context in which he gives this new command. First, see how Jesus' words are sandwiched between these two accounts of two of his disciples, Judas and Peter. Judas was the traitor 
left through the wheel to go and to, to meet a band of soldiers, take them to the place where Jesus would be arrested. But Jesus knew that Jesus would betray him. Yet he still washed his feet along with the others. He still shared the Passover meal with him. Dipping a morsel of bread and giving it to someone was an act of hospitality and friendship. So this is how Jesus acted towards the one who was about to betray him. And then Peter, on the other side of Jesus' words, Peter considered himself much better than a traitor. In fact, he was the opposite to a traitor. He gave this pledge, I will lay down my life for you, the pledge of the kind of love that Jesus had just commanded me. But then Jesus' devastating response, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, when I pray to you have denied me three times. Jesus' prediction, of course, came true. Peter did deny Jesus, and all of his bravado, all of his self-confidence, his self-esteem was destroyed in the moment. So either side of Jesus' command to love, we have these stark examples of how we fail miserably. Jesus was both the Lord their God, whom they were supposed to love with all their heart and mind and strength, and he was their brother and neighbour, whom they were supposed to love as themselves. So in their betrayal, in their denial, they failed to keep both of the two greatest commandments. For these men's failures, who really, they're there as pictures of, of us, they bring into sharper relief this deep love of Jesus. He dies for his friends, but he also dies for his friends who have betrayed him and denied him, those who have become his enemies. Secondly, we need to see that this commandment, in verses 34 and 35, are in the flow of this whole section of verses 31 to 35. The verses immediately before the commandment told us understand more. What was it about Judas going out that prompted Jesus to say about the Son of Man himself that he is, that he is to be glorified? Well, from the moment that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, not to mention his entire life, but particularly as a climax, everything that happened in Jerusalem was happening exactly as planned. The pieces fell in place so perfectly to fulfil what had been foreordained by the Father from before the foundation of the world and spoken of in the prophets. Jesus rode into the city on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. He drove out the money chains in the temple, fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 89. The people rejected him, 
in fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 and others. Judas, going out to betray him, fulfilled Psalm 69 and 109. And it was just as much part of this sovereign plan. But it was the last piece falling into place. Now everything was ready for Jesus to go to the cross and to accomplish the work the Father had sent him to do. This would be his glory, his glorification, when he fulfills everything that was told and foretold about the Son of Man in the Old Testament. The cross, the resurrection and the ascension is where the Son of Man is glorified. And at the same time, God the Father is glorified. Because there, there we see the most explicit expression of love between the Father and the Son. Jesus brings glory to the Father by obeying him, even to death on a cross. And the Father brings glory to Jesus by raising him up and seating him at his right hand. That's how they love one another. They give of themselves to bring glory and honour to the other. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. It's important to God that the world knows about this relationship between the Father and the Son. And we shouldn't dismiss this by saying, oh, it's just uh, eyebrow theology that has no relevance to our lives. We need to know about this relationship of love between the Father and the Son because that's the relationship that we are drawn up into to become participants in. Because the Son, as one of us, united to us in our flesh and our bone, because he's one of us, the dynamics of the relationship between the Father and the Son now flow down through him to embrace us. We are adopted to become his sons and daughters, to be loved by the Father as the Father loves his only Son. Listen to these words of Jesus and see if you can see that pattern. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Can you see how the things that the Son has by knowing the Father, receiving life from the Father, belonging to the Father, being sent by the Father, receiving a kingdom from the Father, receiving glory from the Father, being one to the Father, being loved by the Father. They're all shared with us because we are united to Jesus. So that's the connection between verses 31 and 32, or that high-sounding theology, and the practical 35, 33 to 35, love one another as I have loved you. The love between Father and Son has flowed out and down to us and we've been included. Jesus says we'll be leaving them soon in a physical sense. He'll be going to the cross, the empty tomb, in after 40 days will be lifted up in glory to, to rule over all things from the right hand of the Father in heaven. Then as he promised to come again to take his disciples, including us and all who believe in the gospel, to be with him forever, to participate in his glory in the new creation. And in that in-between time, between his ascension and his return, this new commandment is the mandate for all of his disciples. As we look back to the cross, as we long and look forward to his coming, the deep, deep love of Jesus, which is an expression of the immeasurably deep love of the Father, is the fine expression in the way that we love one another. There's one more thing we need to take note of in this new commandment. It's given to the disciples. It's about their love for one another. He doesn't say, love the world as I have loved you. Sometimes this verse is used as a strategy for missions and evangelism. That we go out and we love on people, people say these days. Love on people, whatever that means. And this will somehow be the gospel in action. That uh, we, we show the gospel in what we do and we only use words if necessary. That quote that's wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. There's two problems with that. Firstly, it's not what the verse is actually saying. And secondly, if love is just a strategy that we use for mission, then it's not really love. It's just a scam. It's an insincere means of manipulating people. It be a way for me to just appease my conscience, to make myself feel better so I can tell God I'm doing something good for him and I'll just use people as a tool for making myself feel better. True love cannot have a hidden agenda. It must involve an open statement of truth. 
Because the best way to love someone, ultimately, is to tell them the gospel. Practical love may relieve some suffering in this life, but the gospel brings relief from suffering in eternity. So loving neighbour as yourself isn't a strategy to achieve a goal. It's simply the responsibility that God has placed actually on every human being because we made his image. So Jesus doesn't need to give a command to love people in the world because that command is already there. It's always stood from the very beginning and has never been done away by Jesus. This is a specific command about the characteristics of this new community that Jesus has formed, God's people, church. There's to be a distinctiveness about our love for one another that makes us stand out from the world and the limited way in which love is expressed in the world. You were a follower of one of the many rabbis that were around in the time of Jesus. It was expected that he would give you something unique and distinctive that would mark you out as his disciple. It may be the way you dress certain prayer shawl or a certain type of gown or clothes. It may have been how you pray or how you practice other forms of piety. It may have been a particular emphasis on the way that you taught the scriptures to others. And normally people would wear these things as a badge of honour so that they could receive respect because it was clear that they were sitting at the feet of this respected Teacher. But the mark that Jesus gives his disciples to wear and to be known for is self-sacrificial love. A love that not even makes people aware that they're Jesus' disciples, but points them to the sacrificial love displayed by Jesus himself. The disciple was expected to be utterly devoted to his rabbi. He was to be prepared to give up everything to follow him, even if it meant losing his home or his family. And we see that by call, don't we? Expressed by Jesus when he calls anyone who would be his disciple to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Yet, no other rabbi was known for laying his life down for his disciples, for expressing his utter devotion to them, such that he's willing to go to a cross to know the complete abandonment of the Father and the loss of all things in this world so that they might be redeemed and brought safely into the Father's family. So we need to see that the one who calls us to love one another is the one who has perfectly done it. He has loved his neighbour as himself. He has loved us as the Father has first 
like him. In fact, he's loved his enemies. Because until we come to him for the forgiveness of the sins, that's what we are. Romans 5 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. You desire to be a person who's able to truly love with self-sacrificial love, then you first need to learn not to love yourself, but to see and to know how great the love of Jesus is for you. You need to come to him in humble repentance, confessing the emptiness and the selfishness of your own intents to love and to receive his mercy and his grace anew, or maybe for the first time. And you need to rest in the security of his love, knowing that all of your needs are met in him as he brings you to his father and to your love. Only then will we be truly free to love as he has loved us. Let's pray.